Hello and welcome. This is the Yoga Revolution podcast. My name is Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him. This podcast is an exploration of how we can live yoga right now and how we can apply the yoga teachings in our lives. We'll discuss the intersection of yoga and social justice, as well as how to build a practice that supports our activism. All my guests are contributors to my new book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Yoga Revolution podcast. I'm very excited today to have a special guest, M. Camelia. Hi, M. Hi. Hi. Uh, let me introduce you first. So, M. Camelia is a fat, queer, non-binary, neuroemergent yoga teacher, writer, and advocate called to create profoundly accessible spaces for self-inquiry. They believe that the goal of yoga is collective liberation and challenge contemporary yoga practitioners to dismantle the systems and beliefs that hold us all back. M. is a co-founder of the Trans Yoga Project and serves on the staff of Accessible Yoga, among other roles within the realm of yoga service. And I'm excited to talk to you today. Before I go on, I also want to say that not only are you a contributor to this book, but you helped me organize it. I would say maybe project managed it or what? What would you say? Um, You know, I don't know if I project managed the whole thing, but um, I, I was honored by the opportunity to, to read through and to give feedback and to, um, yeah, be involved in the process in that way. Right. And, and you helped me in so many ways. So I'm grateful to you for that and for all of your work and for your teaching, which is what I really want to focus on today. So what I've been doing with these podcasts is starting with uh, asking the contributor to read their contributions. I wonder if you could do that. For sure. <clears throat> I've been engaged in social justice work since my teens, but without yoga, my vision was limited. My practice has taught me to answer to an internal authority and stand in my innate agency. By working to reflect my truest, deepest nature instead of mirroring dominant culture, I've begun to understand consent on a deeper level. The divine in me, yoked to our collective divinity, already knows liberation, and it speaks the language of sensation. When I'm acting in alignment with inner wisdom and my unique purpose, I feel it in my body profound peace and satisfaction despite any challenges. I call this my divine yes. At my most discerning, this sensation is my charioteer, driving me to act, explaining my role, and providing direction. To me, this is Ishvara Pranidhana, a willing surrender of illusory individualism and a commitment to co-creating a just world that elicits a liberated collective yes. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. That's awesome. Oh, I mean, it took me. I'm when I start to write, especially within a like little um, a word count constraint. You yeah. know me. I tend to go on. So I think my first draft was probably like three pages. <laughs> I had to whittle down to this paragraph. Um, it took a while, but I was really happy with how it came out, and I think it really does. Um, 
present the essence of what I was trying to say in all um, of those many, many words. <laughs> yeah. And I'd like to actually go through it with you today, like kind of to look at the different things you bring up, because there's so much in there that I love, that I love to talk about. And, I'm, and I'd love to hear you talk about. I, I want to say that I, I'm, I, this contribution is in the third section of the book where I talk about building a practice, you know, like how mm -hmm. to have a personal practice. And I, I just love your focus on this kind of internal yes and this like finding that internal voice and mm -hmm. listening, listening to that voice. There's something so, I mean, it says yes twice in here. And I think that's just so powerful to me, like um, creating, cultivating that sensitivity uh, that allows us to hear that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Absolutely. Um, yes and no. <laughs> and recently, maybe are are kind of big themes in my own practice and just, you know, in my life, which which ultimately is my practice. Um, to me, there's sort of a like, boiled down example of duality. And um, also something that's just so necessary to explore as folks existing in the world, and needing to navigate it and make decisions. Um, you know, they're words we use all of the time. And I don't know that we necessarily stop and really think about the deeper implications of either one. Um, and maybe we think more often about the deeper implications of no rather than yes. You know, we talk about boundaries, right? And we talk about, um, you know, honoring our own uh, physical, emotional limitations, our time limitations, um, you know, and and honoring our own needs within that. So I think we we do talk about how to say no, um, even if we take a long time, or even if I had taken a long time at least to really internalize and learn how to set good boundaries. But um, I don't know if we necessarily spend as much time talking about yes. Um, to me, the metaphor that makes the most sense is like thinking about a long journey, right? Our lives are a journey and we all have a starting place and wherever you are right now, you know, that is where you are right now. And it's the starting place for the rest of your life. And if where I am in the present moment in any facet of my life or in general is feeling like a no if I'm not feeling satisfied. Mm -hmm. I've, you know, learned through my practice to sort of feel those cues in my body. But if all I can do is say no, then all I can do is push off from this spot, from this moment right now. And it's a little bit aimless. Yeah. Mm. Like I can say I'm unhappy, you know, with where I'm living as an example. Right. Um, but that is not enough to give me actual direction and to put real motivation behind the decisions that I make. Because if all I'm doing is saying no, I'm just sort of kicking off of my current position, but not uh -huh. in any given intentional direction. So it's really about um, figuring out what it feels like in my body, in my mind, um, what sensations come up when I think about something or experience something that really is a deep yes for me, and then not only using my no to push off, but also my yes as a guide, right? As a compass a little bit um, to give me that direction. And that has been 
a game changer in my life in terms of how I make decisions and how much um, satisfaction and peace and um, mm. yeah, I have been able to find. How can you talk about it more in your practice? You, you mentioned yeah. it briefly, but I'm curious about. You said you know you've mm-hmm. you've like focused on building that awareness in your practice to help you find mm-hmm. the yes or the no. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I like maybe. Maybe I do too. I do too. So I just got tattoos, right? I got yes on my ring finger on my left hand, that like symbol of commitment over there, and I got no on the opposite ring finger um, on that like right action oriented hand. Um, But then I got maybe across my chest because I think that um, (laughs) like that word maybe is a little more resonant to me even in this moment, just as. Mm the one of these three words that is a not the binary option right somewhere in the middle it's like this large scope of space in the middle and Mm -hmm. i also think that like maybe is where potential is held like yes and no feel so definitive and final um but maybe implies possibility and so i'm i'm looking at it as like you know my practice my journey my life throughout that I'm figuring out um, what the possibilities are for myself. Um, I'd say that this comes into my practice in a lot of ways. I think one of the ways that like I like to think about um, as maybe more of a tangible metaphor is with the body is with asana practice and movement practice in general Um, as well as just like body awareness and interoception and um, whether I'm actually moving through postures or moving at all, doing that practice of checking in with my body internally. And of course, movement practice and meditation and all of the other practices within yoga um, have helped me hone some of that interoception and that sensation, that ability to feel into my body. Um, but if we talk about it in terms of asana, um, mm-hmm. you know, I am in my body. If I am really tuned in to what I'm feeling, often I feel somewhat of a call from my body, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, something is uncomfortable or something feels really great. Um, something feels like a yes or a no, right? If something hurts, that's a no. So I adjust, I adapt. Um, and I move myself into a position where I feel that ease and that um, that yes in my physical body of like, yes, this fits. Um, yes, it is serving whatever intention I have put behind this practice or that I'm exploring right now. Um, and it doesn't really matter what that looks like aesthetically. It's about that internal sensation of following the guidance of my body, right? Um of letting pain speak to me, but also letting pleasure speak to me just as actively. Right. And you, I've learned a lot of, you know, from you around um, consent and power dynamics in yoga. And I feel like that is the key, like that we start to focus inward rather than listen to external authorities, either other people's voices in our head or actual voices like of the teacher or of the culture. Um, Yeah. It seems like that's where, our practice really grows out of like our personal practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When I 
trained to be a yoga teacher in 2016. It was at a studio called Capitol Hill Yoga. It was literally a few blocks down um, Pennsylvania Avenue uh, from the Capitol, the 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 mall, the National Mall um, near the White House, and we had um, you know other students within our studio who were very very like high powered folks in government, including like senators, right, <laughs> coming to classes at the studio because it was very close, and we did these like lunchtime and kind of break time classes that folks would walk into along with, um, you know, folks from the local neighborhood. There was a large diversity in that clientele, um, but a lot of people who worked on the Hill and had a lot of power in their day-to-day lives. And I had the experience as I started teaching there of just really thinking about the inverted dynamic that was happening as I was teaching to folks with all of that power in other realms of life, right? Where like Mm -hmm. the decisions that they're making, maybe even later that day could very largely affect my own life. And here I am at the front of a room, um, giving them essentially direction about what to do with their body. Right. Um, and I was definitely trained, um, as I think a lot of people were, to teach by command and not really use any kind of invitational or trauma-informed language. Um, Like my initial teaching as a teacher, my training as a teacher reinforced that like we couldn't keep people safe unless we were giving them specific directive cues, which I no longer ascribe to whatsoever. My teaching is so different. Uh That's where it really like sparked this thought for me of just like, this is the position in which I'm wielding so much power in my life, right? When I come and teach class and I have a room full of students who come in with their own bodies that are ultimately theirs to control. And instead of teaching them to cue into that, to tap into that, I'm literally commanding how they position themselves, what they do. And I see all of these people sort of pushing and not necessarily tapping in or coming in specifically to kind of tune out the sensations of their body and to have somebody else give them direction, maybe as sort of the contrast to all the decisions that they're making elsewhere, right? But I also heard that feedback a lot from students that like, you know, they wanted adjustments, they wanted to know how to do it, quote unquote, right. Um, And they wanted to come to a space where somebody else could tell them what to do. um, Because that felt like a relief from the pressure of, of day to day life. And Uh um, (laughs) it was also a studio that did a sort of power hatha yoga style. And so it was a like, fast paced, sort of fitness oriented, definitely a like, strive to push yourself kind of environment in an area of the country that just because it is the seat of such power um, has sort of a kind of competitive, even if that's just with yourself, like a a big improvement or or a big culture around like, you've always got to be improving yourself. You've got to be like upping your credentials and building your network and building your power. Um, And I just knowing my own practice, especially as I continued to practice for a few years um, after some of those initial experiences and um, continued my teaching practice as well, 
just started to notice that, you know, I was getting the least <laughs> out of uh, mm -hmm. group asana classes where there was sort of a one size fits all. This is how you do it the right way directive that that was actually feeling constraining and that my sort of resistance to authority um, just continued to build to the point where I would go into those classes and I would leave um, feeling completely annoyed and frustrated that like, you know, um, I was doing maybe an expression of an asana that felt really great in my body and then had somebody come up behind me, maybe without asking and moving my body into a different shape that right. didn't feel comfortable or safe or productive for whatever reason. Um, and that's when I really was like, we, we need to change this because <laughs> we're talking about an inner practice and the way that we're going about teaching it is from that position of externalized authority and direction. That, yeah. That's what I was going to ask you is like, why do you think that we've gone down this road? I mean, it feels like yoga teaching is so often done that way, like yeah. where it's about following the rules. Mm -hmm. And yet I, that seems, it seems to be in opposition to the main philosophy and teachings of yoga. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Uh, I feel like there's several pieces behind that. I think for one, um, we live in a culture of domination, a culture of competitiveness and of constructed hierarchy. And that is how we have organized just about everything. That is rooted in supremacy culture, white supremacy culture that is rooted in um, capitalism and like that idea of, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and that's how you make it. And this disregard for privilege or the exploration of your own social positioning. And so we have traditionally organized our families into hierarchical structures that are built on sort of patriarchal models. Um, we've built our uh, education system into the same sort of hierarchy where you've got teacher and then you have student and teacher is kind of commanding, is enforcing rules, right, is um, put in this position of power and, um, you know, students are not necessarily empowered to explore um, learning what they care about, what they love and are passionate and interested in, um, what feels good to them to explore, what actually suits their learning style, right? Um, we see this in our workplaces that are often structured in that same sort of hierarchical model of like, you have an owner or a CEO, and then you have your middle management, and then you have, you know, your, your sort of staff. Um, and there's this reinforced idea that we need to be striving and competing with each other to climb a corporate ladder or um, to someday be qualified, whatever exactly that means <laughs> in any um, culture or day's current yeah. standard um, to, to move up, um, to place ourselves in positions of superiority. And so I think a big reason that we see that in the yoga culture is that it's largely mirroring that dominant culture that is organized into these constructed hierarchies. It's mirroring that education model where teacher is on a pedestal and student mm -hmm. needs to listen to the rules that are being enforced and that that's the only way um, to learn. Uh, right. I also think you're right. I think that's antithetical to um, the practice itself and the roots of that practice that are 
are rooted in liberation and connecting to inner wisdom and to the true self within. That's the capital S, you know, to our true nature and letting that be expressed through our action, our action in the world. Um, so uh, that plus my study in um, trauma and its psychophysiological impacts on the body mind and mm-hmm. um, and also seeing the ways that the impacts of like acute personal trauma on an individual um, are really mirrored on larger and larger scales as we start to talk about like abusive mm-hmm. environments um, and then even like that dominant culture of supremacy and oppression um, you know we're just seeing the same, thing happen on these various like concentric circle growing outward layers right that mirror one another and i think that because we have such an audience in the west um like a reason that i have not stopped teaching yoga uh, asana altogether is because i recognize that i hold a position of power in that space and i have the opportunity to Uh, to know that and to own that and to collaborate with my students and to create a different environment where instead of giving commands, I am using what I know and the tools that are available to me to offer options for exploring themselves and for tuning into their own bodies and to really own their own power and resources that exist within them and to use them as they choose. And so I emphasize that element of choice um, and of listening to sensation and letting it be your teacher when I lead a class. Um, And (laughs) my experience teaching that way, of course, has been mixed because there are people really resistant to that. I think when we are used to Mm -hmm. um, living in cultures where we have to take direction, um, where we live in a police state, where we have a boss, where we may not be the quote-unquote head of household in our family or might have a a history of uh, abuse or a a dynamic of power that's been inequitable. Um, We put ourselves in a state, I don't know if put ourselves, but we, out of self-protection, right, Um, kind of enter a state often, I think, of Mm -hmm. like, I just need to do what I'm told. That's how I'm going to survive this or how I'm going to get through this or how I'm going to be successful in my job or how I'm going to earn that degree or whatever it is. Um, And so we come into the classroom with that in mind as well. Like if I'm going to be successful in my yoga practice, whether that is on a, you know, spiritual level or, you know, for a lot of folks, it's on a physical level, but um, this idea that they need to conform rather than explore and express, right? Mm-hmm. So I see yoga teachers in the West as having a lot of power because embodiment is so powerful. And, right. you know, practicing these themes in our physical bodies, in our breath practice, um, as well as thinking about them, contemplating them, meditating on them, and including all of the limbs of yoga and all of the aspects of a vast system of spiritual practice has a lot of power to radiate out and to change culture mm-hmm. by allowing individuals to really recognize what is true within them. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? 
Yeah, and I, but I, I guess what I wanted to share is that I feel like people can get easily confused because the yoga is a practice of surrender. Like at the end of your um, quote in my book, you say, um, yeah, to, to me, you talk about, well, at my most discerning, this sensation is my charioteer driving me to act, explaining my role and providing direction. To me, this is Ishvara Pranadana a willing surrender of illusory, illusory individualism and a commitment to co-creating a just world that elicits a liberated collective yes. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm saying is I think people get confused between surrender to an external authority mm-hmm. because that's how we've been trained versus what you describe here, yeah. um, which is an internal authority. Yes. Um, but because I think the surrender piece is so powerful. It is. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. It, it is so powerful. And it took a really long time for me to even come to the level of understanding that I feel like I have right now about that being a surrender to the higher self that, you mm-hmm. know, I think about the kosha model as being like the innermost self. We have to peel back the layers of our conditioning and we need to peel back all that's been internalized by those external authority figures mm-hmm. and see if we can sort of extricate that and build skill and capacity in feeling ourselves through all of those various layers of, of knowledge um, yeah. and wisdom that our bodies hold and that uh, our energy body holds and all of those different koshas, those sheaths of the body hold until we can get to the deepest place that we have access to and figure out what yes is there. And so there's a little bit there too for me that kind of brings in the concept of like dharma or, or purpose or fitting into the larger whole, right? That we need to figure out the reality of ourselves and act from that place to be in alignment with the whole. Right. Mm. Um, And I don't think that we can actually co-create a liberated collective. Yes. If we don't as individuals understand what our individual yes is, because it's only from that place of understanding our own desire and our own power that we can then come together in community and express that to each other and negotiate, right? Go through like that consent practice piece um, and that um, consensus building piece to figure out what yes looks like for a collective body of multiple mm-hmm. individuals. And that's where the sort of consent education comes in. It's the the piece where we have kind of already done our inner work and and now we're interacting with other bodies, with other beings mm-hmm. um, and undergoing a constant negotiation, like always navigating a power dynamic in any given yeah. relationship. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. I also, I want to go back to something you mentioned. Uh, you talked about um, trauma and how that impacts, well, what I heard you saying is that that impacts our almost like our ability to trust our mm-hmm. experience or something like that. That's maybe what's happening. And and I, I just like that kind of reframe of trauma informed yoga, because I feel like, I feel like trauma informed teaching is kind of misunderstood and almost used to just like overly simplify the teachings or sanitize them yeah. rather than to do this, which I think is what you get to, which is, give people a connection with themselves, give them back agency and power. Cause I feel like that's really what trauma informed teaching could do. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I do think it's what it, what it aims to do. Um, I think a lot of what we call trauma-informed models today come out of sort of uh, a westernized psychological um, yeah. model. And that's where you get that sanitization and that sort of um, disruption from the roots of yoga. I was recently um, on the faculty for a training that was led by Susanna Bargataki. Um, and she was talking about trauma-informed yoga in a session um, recently and the statement that I really like took away from that and hold on to um, was that like the roots of yoga are inherently trauma informed, that if we mm -hmm. are honoring authentic practice, then we are already teaching in a trauma informed way because we are already um, offering skills and teachings and practices that tune people into their own sense of agency and sovereignty um, and then to express that beyond themselves. Um, yeah. And I think that that's what some of these newer, you know, Western science informed models are also intending to do. Um, I just don't think we need to, nor do I feel it's appropriate to divorce, uh, mm. you know, that empowerment um, and that that model from source. Right. Like I'm here for science and research, but I'm also here for. Uh, integrating that with the truth and understanding that the only reason we've needed to create those models is because we've already strayed too far away from the roots of yoga. Yeah, I love that connection too. So trauma-informed teaching is more, it's more like um, looking back to the roots of yoga, but also I think it's doing what you talk about, which is focusing on power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I see trauma-informed teaching often do is like finding a way to say that that feels okay, where it's like, you know, use invitational language because really invitational language is what you were saying. It's like talking about power and the teacher not having the authority, but like trying to share that with yeah. the student in the class. Yeah. One thing I will say is that I have been doing a lot less of these sort of studio group classes uh, yeah. recently, not just because of COVID and my sort of dislike for trying to teach asana <laughs> online. Um, mm. But uh, that's also in part because of the power dynamic, like mm. the shift in power dynamic that I see when I'm trying to teach online and everybody's like got their uh, camera turned off um, and nobody's interacting, like everybody's muted and at their mats. So there's no like Q&A or discussion or collaboration that can really happen in that environment, which has been an issue for me. So I have been doing a lot more one-on-one -on -one teaching, which has its own challenges in terms of like financial accessibility. But um, in terms of the, the dynamic there, it is so much more evident um, and so much easier to discern sort of the power dynamic that's at play and to have a real conversation and negotiation about that and to be in dialogue with the student throughout the practice. And that's an element of teaching privately or to much smaller groups that I find really, really um, profound in the feedback that I get from them in the way that the practice is impacting them and also in terms of being able to really co-create that yes. Um, I think that there are ways that, especially in person um, and even online, we can work towards that sort of culture um, in in the practices that we lead or participate in. Um, but I 
I think that that requires a lot of sort of community re-education among teachers, a lot more attention paid to the history of yoga, to the roots of yoga, to um, to the philosophy of yoga and more of the holistic practice and fostering a deeper understanding as teachers of what we're really like aiming for here. Cause it's not some sort of, you know, idealized, supremacized, hierarchized body or physical position, asana expression, um, but rather um, a liberated soul, right? A liberated spirit and a liberated individual who can bring that individual liberation and extend it outward to their communities and um, bring us all a little bit closer to that alignment with our nature, not only as individuals, but also our collective nature, our collective dharma. Hmm. And how, how do you, how, like, how do we do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that a lot of it has to do with um, starting even before you hold a class, before you're in space with folks. Like, I think doing, of course, your inner work. And, and I, you know, the, the teachers that I respect will always tell you, like, you need to do your own practice, right? And be, continue to be a practitioner as a teacher. Um, I think that's completely true. I think that if we're going to hold such a position of power as to lead a class or facilitate a practice, uh, we need to own our own power and positionality. And that means understanding the inherent dynamic between teacher and student that's been constructed in our society, but also understanding power and privilege in a larger context that, um, you know, students with various identities, um, various backgrounds, uh, like people who experience oppression in their day-to-day lives, um, maybe oppressions that you don't experience, places where you have the privilege, that that's also going to enter the dynamic in the classroom. So like step one is always do your own work. And I don't just mean do your asana practice. I mean, you know, do your unlearning, do your personal uh, interrogation of what you've internalized and what you believe mm. to be true. Make sure you understand your positionality in the social landscape as well as in the classroom dynamic. And then mm. owning that, like present yourself that way. So when you do your marketing, when you make your website, when you um, are speaking at an event, um, et cetera, making sure to sort of own what you know of yourself, your position and your power. And that can be verbal. That can also be subtle, right? It can be in the way that you act and and, uh, interact with students. It's like, it's the difference between walking into the classroom after everybody has set up when you've been kind of like off hidden somewhere in the back of the studio um, and kind of walking in and, and it's almost a performance of like, hello, I am the teacher. Here's my wisdom. Now follow my instruction, which is, I, you know, that's how I used to enter a classroom. It was very much like, all right, I'm going to make my grand entrance to my audience. And it's about like being there, getting to know students, prefacing your classes with, you know, owning your own power and maybe an invitation for students to take a moment to um, reflect inward before you're like doing your warm up or your sun salutation and, and connect into whatever internal source you can. I like to, start every practice with um, an invitation to listen inward or to listen to something that I might be saying. So I'll give like a two or a three minute um, 
more philosophical talk that's tied to the practice that we're going to do. But I also always give folks the option there to just be tuned into their bodies and their breath and to tune me out. Um, and I always um, preface class with exactly what I'm saying that like, um, this is exploratory and this is for you. It's your practice and we're here in community. Um, but we're not here in community to um, conform with one another. We're here in community to support one another in exploring uh, our individuality and how that comes together to create the collective. Like there's no unity without diversity. That's that's duality also, right? Um, yeah, and then, I love that quote. Yeah, and then just in terms of like how we're actually teaching, I do use an invitational language. Um, everything is an offer, but I also would say I expand that to be exploratory language. Um, so in terms of invitation, it's like, yeah, maybe you want to try this, perhaps this, here's a few like options for you. And often at least one of those is going to be something that's really dynamic and fluid and exploratory and less of a static asana and more of a like, Maybe you choose instead of like taking any given arm position to like circle your arms and pay attention to your shoulders and your back and your chest and notice, um, you know, what level of rotation, what position for your arms in this shape feels like it's serving you best or is bringing you pleasure or is offering you something that you're looking for in this moment. And then you create your own variation from there, right? It doesn't have to be one of these pre-prescribed ideas. Mm -hmm. And I build a lot of that into the beginning of practice um, as well. Like the whole warm-up section is generally exploratory dynamic movement that is going to then um, maybe become pertinent in the sequence that I'm offering later. You know, maybe we did some of those arm circles in a seated position at the very beginning, and then we come to you know, a standing asana where you can take any arm variation you like, and I can call back to and remind them of that exploration, which sort of simplifies the cueing and just in terms of efficacy of the class and like efficiency also gives the opportunity then to continue exploring or to take what you already learned 15 minutes ago <laughs> about your own body and its pleasure and its comfort and to just find that now here and mm -hmm. find um, maybe a more static posture that has that, you know, yeah. that steadiness and ease, that stira and sukha and, um, and already have that information as we go further into physical practice, right? Awesome. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to share? Um, this is all really amazing and helpful. Thank you. I mean, I think the only other piece that I find really, really important is the dialogue and the continued dialogue aspect of teaching, of checking in. And sometimes that is literally like asking a student that I have rapport with, like, how's this feeling? Or, mm -hmm. you know, like, depending on the size of the group, um, Maybe that's just an invitation, like check in with your body, do a quick body scan, even in this asana, not just like in our yoga nidra or um, in our seated position, but like try a body scan right now and notice if there's anything that your body is asking to be adjusted, like not just be in conversation with me and give me feedback, mm. though that's always welcome and I can help you uh, find more options or opportunities for exploration if you would like that. But also, like, really listen to that internal authority. Tune inward and let that be your guide, right? Yeah. Have a dialogue with yourself. 
have a dialogue with yourself. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's the key right there. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing thank with me. <laughs> yeah, and and for contributing to the book and for all the ways that you support me. I really appreciate it and appreciate you. <laughs> appreciate uh, you. Yeah, and that was just a lot. So I'm sure people will enjoy listening to that. Um, there's so much, so much detail and depth in what you share. So thank you you again. Yeah. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks so much for listening and joining the conversation. Yoga is truly a revolutionary practice. Thanks for being here. If you haven't already, I would love for you to read my book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. It's available wherever books are sold. Also, you can check out my website, jivanaheyman.com. There's some pre-classes on there and a meditation, and you can find out more about my upcoming trainings and other programs. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye.